Amen. Thank you, Pastor, for those kind words. Turning your Bibles uh, to John 17, John chapter 17, um, we're just going to start off with one quick verse, 17, 17. I'm, I'm going to do something different than I normally do. Usually, and kind of in college, they, they taught us to be exegetical mostly, like 95% of the time. I'm going to do something different tonight. It's more kind of teaching mode than preaching mode, although there's still some preaching there. Um, it's it's kind of going to be topical on the Bible and the fact that the Bible is unique. Um, I, I would have had notes for you, but I literally just kind of finished putting this all together probably 45 minutes ago to an hour. <laughs> I wasn't sure what to do with the end. Um, but John 17, 17, and uh, we'll begin reading just that verse to, to, to kick us off tonight. God says in his word, sanctify them in, in the truth. Your word is truth. Um, as I've been working in, in, in uh, the secular field for several years now, um, God has, has placed me in, in a spot that I'm, I'm really able to be used as salt and light in, in ways, obviously, in church ministry. You're not, I mean, the pastor's already saved, you, you, you hope, right? <laughs> um, the pastor's already saved, so being salt and light in the workplace is kind of, uh, I mean, you know, I'm there, but there's nobody really to witness to. Um, God has placed somebody in my path that I work very closely with. Um, that I have been able to just answer a lot of difficult questions. Um, he's very much a, a thought-provoking young man. Uh, he enjoys asking questions because he knows I'm going to give him a straight answer. Um, and if I don't know the answer, he knows I'll come back to him. Um, he asks very difficult questions. And um, uh, tonight's topic is kind of a, 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 small, a, a pinpoint of a larger topic called apologetics, how to witness to people. Um, and oftentimes it's good, sometimes, in the case of my coworker, it's good to know some of these things because he doesn't like to hear the answer of, well, I believe it by faith. Now, we know what that means, and, and yes, there's a point where our, our spiritual life comes down to believing by faith, but for him and for others uh, like him, and I have met many others like him, it's good to know a few things of, well, what can I do to, to show him that this book uh, is God's word, and it's 100% true, and it can be believed, sometimes without using, though without using scripture, right, because if they don't believe the Bible when you use scripture, now that's not to say we're not going to use scripture tonight because this is a church service and, and that's what we do, right, but I want us to, to think about what do I think about the Bible, and also maybe what do others think about the Bible? Because those are two vastly different, different things. Because people like my coworker and others, they think it's a good book, it has some good advice in it. Um, like other religions, you can, take, you can take what you can from it, and it can be used, it's good for you. Um, I, I know I've heard this and had many conversations about, about this, mythical representations are, are there, written down by mankind, but there's some mythical representations, some allegories, um, things that didn't really happen, but they're there, they're good. Um, this is, obviously, this is not what we say, this is what, again, this is what other people are thinking about the Bible. It's a good reference tool to live by. It's, uh, it's, it's some, some take it to the, the negative extreme, it's created to control people, make them do what you want. Um, uh, it has stories that people have made up to try to explain things. It's a good rule for a living, but it's been manipulated and translated over five million times, so you really just lose a lot of what it was supposed to have said, and it really just doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. And then the question is, is the Bible true? Some would say, oh, well, not, 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 not us, because we know that to not be true, but some would say, not 100% true. Some would say, not parts of the Old Testament, like the stoning and things like that, because um, obviously your church doesn't do that today. Well, true. <laughs> we don't. Um, but uh, so, some might say, well, you can interpret it however you want, or it's just a code of ethics, something that's open to interpretation. And I want us to look at just a few verses as, as we kick off. Psalm 119, 160. We're going to use a lot of verses uh, here. 
The sun, this is why I, we don't have time to turn to them, so I have them on the screen. The sum, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Psalm 119, uh, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Uh, Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, what's the two words there? Stands forever. Uh, Mark 13, 31, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words... God says, will not pass away. 1 Peter 1, 23-25 says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and endearing, enduring word of God. For all the flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off. But the word, there's this phrase again, the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. The Bible is unique, and to us as believers, it's so important. And those, those verses of Scripture um, should, should pack a punch to our hearts and, and just kind of fill us with excitement to know that this book is not a book, but it's the Word of God. It's the words of God that will stand forever. And that's exciting. For me as a believer, because I know it to be true, I've seen things happen because of the Word of God. I've seen lives changed because of the Word of God. But to my coworker, he doesn't have that excitement. I could share him those verses of Scripture and, well, I don't know. Somebody just popped that in there because they wanted that to be true. Well, I want us to, 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 to learn tonight how unique the Bible is and the facts I'm going to be sharing with you really are just kind of through study. Kind of, there's been online tools, research done through websites, apologetics websites, uh, places uh, like Answers in Genesis, places like Josh McDowell. Obviously, some some of these things I, I might I, I not agree 100% on everywhere that they stand, but on, on, on this kind of issues, it's very, very helpful um, places to find. And you can actually do your own research there as well. You'll probably find some of these things and go, oh, I remember uh, Andy uh, mentioned this this fact. We know God, through these verses I showed, has wonderfully preserved his word. Why? Because he promised he would. And tonight we're going to look at how. What's so special about the Bible? How unique is it when compared to other, and I'm going to compare it to other books of literature tonight. And we're going to see some, uh, just, uh, I'm just amazed at how awesome God really preserved his word through the centuries. I'm in no way wanting to bring the Bible down to the level of books, uh, books of literature, by the way. But tonight, if you could kind of permit me, what if, what if we came across one like my coworker who thought the Bible's just another book? What could we say to kind of help answer that question and say, well, look, you know, if you think it's another book, how about, how about, how about I share with you a few, a few facts? And you might want to take, your, take a pen and a piece of paper out. But we'll know it's not just another book by the end. We know it's the Word of God. And there's kind of three types of faith, right? There's an unreasonable faith, there's a blind faith, and a reasonable faith. The unreasonable is believing in something in spite of evidence, which, which we, we, might, we might have that. Blind faith is believing in something without any evidence. And a reasonable faith is believing in something because of the evidence. And, and I think it's okay to look at evidence that would take our faith to a whole other level and say, Wow. There's some evidence to back that up too. That's awesome. That kind of that kind of stuff kind of gets me really excited. Um, as I've been teaching Sunday school class for the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, uh, we just this is kind of kind of just a, about a month ago, I think, we came across the lesson as we jumped out of the Old Testament, jumping into the New Testament, and looking at and, and they brought this out uh, this particular aspect. So this kind of led me to this for tonight. And, and how awesome it was. The, the kids kind of loved the illustration they gave. And um, I, I just get excited to see how, how incredible God has preserved his word. The Bible is unique. Let's, let's jump into it. First of all, uh, unique is different from all others, having no like or equal. We know that to be true. Tonight we're kind of going to prove that, okay? Beyond a shadow of a doubt. First of all, I want us to see that it's unique in its continuity. It's unique in its continuity. It's different from all others. It has no like or equal. Uh, what, about, what about it that it's, it's unique? It was written over a 1,500-year span of life. It was written by over 40 different authors. And I'm going to go through these really fast, so if you want my notes later, you, you can have them. Uh, written by over 40 different authors. Uh, that's amazing. 
Um, the authors were from, from every walk of life. You had kings, you had fishermen, you had peasants, you had poets, uh, you had philosophers, uh, you had statesmen. So many different walks of life. It's, it's, it's astronomical to see uh, the differences in all of the authors that God used to write his words. Of course, we know under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, just beautiful. Uh, what else? It was written in a variety of places. We had parts of it written in the wilderness. The, a dungeon. And you had Paul writing from prison. Uh, you had John on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, it was written in a palace. Other parts on a military campaign. Uh, written in so many different places. And there's, there's more and more. Uh, it, was, it was written during times of war and during times of peace. It was written uh, during different moods. All the heights you have in the Bible is written from, from uh, 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 feelings of joy and happiness to the farthest extreme. Uh, sorrows. The deepest kind of sorrows. What else? It was written on three different continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages. You have the Hebrew and the Aramaic. And then you have the New Testament Greek. Three different languages. What else? What else do we see? It was written on hundreds of controversial subjects with harmony and continuity. You say, what is that? Well, if I said the Cubs are the finest baseball team in the world, uh, that's a controversial subject, right? Um, and I know I'm, I'm pretty well alone uh, here tonight with, with that thought. I'm a Cubs fan. Um, all, I've been one all my life, and yes, I bought some tickets to go watch the Cubs when they're in town here against the Tigers, and so uh, yes, I'm going to be wearing my Cubs, my, Cubs, uh, my Cubs hat and my Cubs shirt. Uh, hopefully they treat me all right, but that's, that's what I'm going to do, because <laughs> I love the Cubs. But that's controversial. Um, obviously the Bible goes, that's, that's not the type of topics the Bible covers are, are, are much deeper than that, but you understand what I'm saying. It's unique in its continuity. What else do we see? It's unique in its circulation. It's unique in its circulation. From the Bible societies alone, there have been 2,582,000,000 Bibles. That's New Testaments or individual scriptures, portions printed. Now this, now this is only up to 1974. So from 1974 to now, there's been more. And, and I would submit to you way more than that, or not way more than that, but much more to add to this. But this number is only up to 1974. Um, say, say why? Well, because that's the only number I could find that they, they would give me like this, this good number to, to put up there. So using this 1974 figure, um, someone has taken this and, and given us a good illustration to figure out why. So to print every Bible... New Testament and individual portions of the Bible published up to 1974. One printer would have to produce, and here we go. One printer would have to produce one copy every three seconds. 20 copies every minute. That's 1,200 copies every hour. And I think there's one that, that didn't make it on there. Uh, my, my font that actually uh, didn't do my font. Two, 28,800 copies every day. That's 10.5 million copies every year nonstop for 245 years. Now again, that was using the 1974 figure. That's, that's how much you have to, to, to catch up to that figure. That's enough pages of Scripture to circle the earth end to end over 1,000 times. I mean, I'm, I'm like, wow. Let's, let's pause there. That's, that's crazy, but that, that's awesome. That's what, we, I, what I would call unique. The Bible's unique in its circulation. And not only that, it's unique in, in, in its translation. It's been translated, portions of it as well, it has been translated, portions of it, into 2,403 different languages. Now, we still have languages that don't have the entire Bible in their own language. Um, there's some that don't have any of it in their own language, um, it's been printed into the languages of about 95% of the people in the world. Um, not 95% of all languages. There's still a few hundred to go. So all 
languages left only represent about 5% of the people in the world, but there's a huge number of population within that 5%. The population of the world in that 5% is actually huge. So there's still a lot of work to be done in the, in the area of Bible translation. Don't let me talk, get into that. We've been in the, in the missions committee, been, been pouring over a Bible translation missionary, and I'm excited about that. Um, because I find it fascinating. It takes a lot of work to get a Bible translated, let alone just a portion of Scripture. Um, and I'm just I'm fascinated at how well uh, these missionaries work in that, but how long it takes. Um, and, and, and seeing this number, seeing 95% of all the people in the world have the Bible or portions of it in their language, to me, I look at that and go, that's still not enough. It's still not enough. Why? Because there's some that just don't have the entire Bible. We are so lucky I don't know if you know that. We're so lucky that we have the entire Bible that we can have in our hands. And, and many, many of us uh, have more than one Bible at home. Uh, we are so lucky that we have that. That's unique in its translation. Um, not only that, it's unique in its survival through persecution. I'm going to start kind of slowing down. I've been kind of fast up to this point, but we're going to start getting into a little bit more, um, I would say, fun. Uh, it's unique. And its survival through persecution. In AD 303, you had a man by the name of Diocletian. Uh, Diocletian was a Roman emperor. He made an edict, and in this edict, he made actually three of them. He was a Roman emperor in 303 AD. Three edicts of persecution upon Christians. He's calling for the destruction of their churches, their manuscripts, their books, and even Christians themselves. Um, why? He wanted to stop Christianity. He wanted to wipe it off the face of the earth. Um, did he succeed? Of course, we don't know. <laughs> We're here. <laughs> um, and so the Bible is unique in, fe- in its survival through persecution. But I want us to look at, at the second one that's theirs. He wanted to destroy the manuscripts. Because then we go, well, well, what happened? Well, we're, we're going to remember that word manuscript. We're going to look at it here in a little bit. Then, then you had Constantine commanded 50 perfect copies of the scriptures to be prepared. So there, of course, you say, well, that's not, that's, that's, well, in the midst of persecution, you had Constantine then coming along saying, hey, let's, let's, let's make some perfect uh, copies of the scriptures. And what does that take? Well, it takes uh, people handwriting it down and making sure it's word for word, letter for letter, every jot, every tittle, all of that written down specifically. That was, uh, that was uh, the emperor Constantine 25 years later. So again, helping. Then you had Voltaire. He was a French skeptic. He came along, and uh, his prediction, Christianity would be extinct in 100 years, and that the Bible would then just, just pass off. That, that was his thought. Um, he died in 1778. And then uh, 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society, I, I kind of thought God is humorous in this. The Geneva Bible Society actually, years, 50 years after his death, took over his printing operations they, they moved in um, to his home, took his printing presses, and started printing thousands of copies of Scripture. <laughs> I don't know if that was them just saying, okay, Voltaire, guess what? <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> um, I thought that was kind of a great little, little, little tidbit of information. The Bible has survived through, through persecution after persecution. People, people trying to just burn it away. It's unique. It's unique in its historiography, and this is, this is the big one we're going to spend a lot of time on. There's a lot of points to this, and uh, with God's help, I'm going to try to get us through this aspect. What do I mean by unique in its historiography? It means it has been preserved as a historical document. Why is, why is that so important, Andy? I mean, we have it. It's right here. But why is it important when we talk about it as a historical document? Well, because it's the Word of God, and we, we, we read some, some verses there at the beginning that God talked about preserving His Word, that the Word would stand forever. And how has God used people in history to preserve the Bible so that we can look at it? Well, there's some questions we got to ask when we're talking about this phrase, this historiography, it being preserved as a historical document. The first one is, is what we have today, what was written 2,000 years ago, or whenever it was written, or has it been changed through time as my coworker and maybe other coworkers of yours might believe or might say? 
you know, I believe, yeah, I believe that, yeah, but it's been changed so far down the years through the translation process that it doesn't even mean the same as what it was when it was written, right? That's one question we're going to answer tonight. Second, was what was written down true or was it a lie, right? So because if it wasn't true, then we don't really care about question one. We don't really care if it has been changed because if what was written was a lie, then why would we care, right? So what was written down, was it true or was it a lie? The first one we're going we're gonna to cover a whole lot of. The second one we're just going to go through uh, quickly. But we're going to start with first. When we, we talk about today what was written, has it been changed or is it the same? There's three tests that you go through for any type of historical document, not just the Bible, but we're going to go through these tests tonight with the Bible as well. So there's three tests. For this, the first one was is a, a bibliographical test. The bibliographical test. I'm trying to talk too fast with that big word. Uh, <laughs> the bibliographical test. It, it's a test that determines whether the text of the historical record has been transmitted accurately. So, as they took these original manuscripts, has it been transmitted down through the ages? Has that been accurate, or was there some 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 inaccuracies? So we're going to look at a bibliographical text test. Then there's an internal evidence test. The internal, an internal evidence test is something they would take and look at. And they would say, actually, we're going to flip these two. I didn't change the slide, but that's going to be the last one we look at. Um, that, that, that's that's the, the second test. Uh, and the third test, actually, is what we're going to look at. I'm sorry, I don't mean to confuse you. I'm confusing myself. So that's the internal test. Using the book itself to test it against itself to look for inaccuracies, Right? You know, some people say the Bible is full of inaccuracies, right? I don't believe that. Um, and, and we're also going to look at the external evidence test. I really wish I had changed this slide. So if you take external and flip it with internal, we're going to look at external second and internal last. That's how we're going to close the service tonight with the internal because I just felt that would be better. I just wish I had changed the slide. <laughs> All right, so let's look at the bibliographical test. All right, hopefully I don't lose you. If I start losing you, just wave your hand around. And, and uh, if I see a lot of glazed look over the eyes, I'll know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll know to, 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 to change it up a little bit. I mentioned the word manuscript, and I told you to remember that. Um, the, this test asks questions about the manuscripts of any piece of literature in history. We're going to obviously look at the Bible a little bit as well. But we're going to look at other manuscripts of history as well and compare them, see what happens. So first of all, we need a definition of manuscript. The manuscript is the handwritten copy of the original. There are no originals left today um, um, because they've all disintegrated. Right? The paper back then was not good to, 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 to last. It wasn't meant to last long. And so all the original copies have, have disintegrated. But we have manuscripts, the handwritten copies of the original as people copied down the Bible they wrote these manuscripts. And so all we have left are the manuscripts. And so um, that's whatever took place before the printing press in the 1500s. So everything had to be done by hand. Um, you know, you had the papyrus, the reeds growing in, in, the, in, in the, uh, uh, the Nile River would take. And, and, you know, and so you'd have to make a copy of a copy. And then that one would start to disintegrate. Yeah, time to make another copy. And so you'd have somebody, uh, somebody sit down and start making another copy, Right? So, do we have the Bible today? Is it what was, what was written so, so, many, so many years ago? Um, well, as we're doing this, you, you want to ask two questions. You want to ask a couple questions here, two of them. When we're looking at these manuscripts, when they do this test, these are the questions they ask. First one they ask is, from the original copy, which we no longer have for the Bible, how far is the first copy removed from it? So you, take the, you have the original copy. When you find a manuscript, how close is that to the original? That's, that's one question we ask. And then the second one they ask is, how many manuscripts do we have? They even take those manuscripts and compare them to each other because if you compare them to each other, then you kind of know, are they almost exactly the same? Are they pretty close? Right? So we're going to look at the, the first one uh, from the original copy. It's not always, but the the closest to the original has the greatest accuracy. That's the thought, right? The closest you have to the original should have the greatest accuracy. You ever play the telephone game, right, where you get a little phrase and it goes down the line, and then at the end, hopefully, well, okay, wow, they got way off, right? So you're hoping that, 
everything is accurate. As close to the original should be the most accurate, right? Let's, we're going to compare the Bible to other forms of literature. Why, why is this important? Because I want us to, we're talking specifically just about manuscripts, right? Because everybody looks at the Bible and says, there's no way that's the same as way back then, right? But they'll look at other literatures and nobody says that about any other book. Uh, I've never heard anybody say that about anything else, such as Caesar's Gallic Wars. This was written uh, uh, 1,000 years. We have the closest manuscript to the original writing of Caesar's Gallic Wars. It's 1,000 years gap, right? That's a pretty big gap. But nobody says uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars is, is different, right? That's my, the point I'm trying to make tonight. You have Plato, his dialogues. There's a 1,200-year there's a gap, <clears throat> and nobody says anything about that. Um, we only have seven copies, seven manuscripts of, of Plato's uh, dialogues. We have Aristotle. He wrote uh, his Poetics in 343 B.C. The closest one we have is 1100 A.D. That's 1400 years later. Nobody says anything about Aristotle's Poetics being different than when he wrote it, right? That's the point we're trying to make tonight, right? You have Thucydides. He's considered one of the most accurate historians I can't remember if I put him up there. Yeah, 1,300 years. A 1,300-year gap. And he's considered one of the most accurate historians. And the closest thing we have to his original writings is 1,300 years later. Okay, that's the closest manuscript we have. And that's, that's actually not bad, okay? But still, when we go back within about 70 to 80 years uh, years of the time of Christ, the papyri it's written on, right? We have uh, Homer's, I'm sorry, Homer's Iliad, uh, well, very well known, right? The closest manuscript is, is, is 500 years. I'm kind of getting away from my notes here. I think I, I, yeah, there we go, page two, got it. All right, all right. What about the Bible? The closest manuscript we have to the original is less than 100 years. It's actually right around about 70 years. Look at all those. In the Bible, 70. Is the Bible unique? Is God preserved his word? We know that to be true. But here's some facts for us to go at and look at and say, wow, I didn't even know that. That's awesome. That's about 70 years compared to all these others that nobody says anything about. That nobody says, oh, they're not the same. The Bible is right around about a little over maybe 70 years. That's, to me, that is unbelievable. And to me, that's just God saying, yes, my promise is true. I've preserved my word. I told you my word would stand forever, and here it is, standing forever. Why? Because I've used people to help copy these manuscripts and take careful time. There's more evidence, really time-wise, for the New Testament than we have, but... Uh, this is, this, is, this is better than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. I mean, it's astronomical and unbelievable. You might ask, how do you determine the age of a manuscript? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a slide for this, but they look at the type of material that it's written on. They can tell how old it is based on what, what type of paper it was written on. The letters, the size, and the forms... The way it was printed uh, was, was changed through the years, just, just like uh, English has, has changed a little bit. You have Old English versus English now. If you look at the King James Version when it was first written, you probably wouldn't even be able to read it. Uh, I've seen pages of it and gone, okay, don't recognize these words. Why? Because the English language has changed over time as well, but you can tell the date based on that. It's the same kind of idea. Um, the way that was printed changed through the years. Many of the verses and chapters had ran together and they divided them down through the years so you can actually see that happening as, uh, on these manuscripts. Old books usually have some sort of graphic or first letter of the paragraph done artistically. You've seen maybe some of those in old bookstores. Um, the color and texture of a document. There's, th those are the ways to determine how old and the age of this manuscript. There are people, I don't do that because I, I, I don't know what I'm looking at, but there are people who have, have these types of been taught how to know, and how to look at it. So that kind of helps us a little bit. But then we go to our other question we had. 
I'm sorry, I forgot I had this in here. There's more evidence. Yeah, uh, there, there we go. Time-wise, the, 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 we said that already. All right. <laughs> Bibliographical test. All right, we looked at, from the original copy, how far is the first copy removed for it? The Bible, we've got less than 100 years, which is, is awesome. Second question we wanted to cover is, how many manuscripts do you have? How many manuscripts do we have? If we have the, the closest one, it, it, seven years, and, and so people are saying, well, you know, the, the Bible has eh, changed over the years. How many manuscripts do we have? Because the more you have, the easier it is to reconstruct the exact text of the original. Does that make sense? The more manuscripts you have, you can take them all, compare them to each, each other, and say, wow, this is pretty accurate. They all, they're all saying the same thing, or this one might have one word different. But they're all pretty similar. Does that make sense? The more you have, the better able you are to say we have the exact thing before us today. Right? All right. So, if I'm t- I might be talking too fast. I hope not. All right. I see a lot of people just nodding their heads. So that's good. That's good. Uh, all right. My daughter's just like, what? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can talk to me later. I'll, I'll give you more. All right. So. Compare with Caesar, the Gallic Wars. How many manuscripts? Again, we're, we're comparing to other literature tonight, just for fun, okay, for funsies. Compared to Caesar's, Gallic Wars, he only had 10 manuscripts survived. He only has 10, all right? Uh, we mentioned Thucydides. He only had eight survived. He is one of the most accurate historians. He's a well-known historian. He's only had eight survived. You say, what about the New Testament? You ready? You ready for this? The New Testament, 24,633. I look at it and go, what? what? That much? Yes. That much. It's the number one book in manuscripts. Number one. You say, what's number two? Homer's Iliad. You say, well, well, so that's got to be at least, you know, 10, 15, 20,000. 643. That's the closest manuscript you have of any book of literature. Uh, 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 it's historicity. 643 survive compared to the New Testament, 24,633. There is no close second whatsoever if we're just looking at the Bible and comparing it to the books of literature and comparing it to this bibliographical test, the Bible stands eons above every other book that is out there. So I can look at this book and say, you know what? <laughs> what I have today, I, I already knew it to be true that it's the Word of God and I can trust it. But you know what this helps me to do? Go, you know what? That just, that just reinforces what I believe right there. And you know what? I can take this to my coworker and say, hey, you know what? What do you think about Homer's Iliad? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that's changed over time? Well, probably not. Well, you know how many manuscripts uh, that they have? Well, 643. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, you know how close they are to the original? Well, do you know about the Bible? You, you mentioned the Bible. Well, you know how many manuscripts they have of the Bible? 24,633. You know the closest manuscript we have for the Bible? Less than 100 years. So I can tell my coworker, look, I, and, and I'm never pushy. I'm never pushy um, with this coworker because I really love these, these, these talks we have, and they're difficult sometimes, and I sweat. I sweat because I go, I want to say the right thing. I don't want to make him angry, and he never gets angry, and he always says, you know what? I really appreciate the fact that you really give me a truthful answer, um, and, and that we never fight or argue. And now sometimes we, we, we have a little discussion, right? <laughs> um, but it's always good, and we always walk away, and it, it's, it's kind of nice. I, I know you don't have that everywhere, and so I'm really praying for him. But, but this is just unbelievable, and it just backs up my faith. And it, it tells me I, I can have faith in God, but I can also have faith in evidence and know that this evidence blasts everything out of the water. It's awesome. The early church fathers, you know, say, how, how do we come to this number? Well, you have the, actually early, early church fathers quoting scriptures and letters to people 86,489 times. And, e, and even those letters, some of them are whole chapters of the New Testament. 
That's how we come to this number. That's, that, that's how, how we have those manuscripts. Because you had early church fathers writing letters to people with whole chapters of the New Testament. Say, so who did that? Was that the early church fathers or was that God? I think you know the answer. God says, I'm going to preserve my word. And what did he do? He preserved his word. There's no book that can compare. I just get goosebumps thinking about it. You can reconstruct all but 11 verses of the New Testament with those early church fathers' letters. All but 11 verses of the New Testament. Wow. That's God. I have today what was written down 2,000 years ago. I had no doubt before I even looked at any of this type of... I had no doubt, but now I can look at it and go, (laughs) yeah, that validates it. That validates it right there. Then we look, at, um, we look at our other question we asked. Was what we have written 2,000 years ago the same? It is. Was what was written down true or was it a lie? I mean, obviously, we know the answer to that question, right? Um, but there are two, two, two things to not overlook when we're talking about this, maybe with other people, right? Is it true? Well, you have the writers. They wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts, especially the New Testament, right? The New Testament is nothing really but almost an eyewitness account, which is, which is great. Um, they wrote as eyewitnesses and recorded eyewitness accounts. You had Acts 1, 3, and I don't have these on, on the screen. I'm just going to read them off. To these, he also presented himself alive. This is talking of Christ after his resurrection, Luke writing the book of Acts, to these Christ also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. 1 John 1, 1, John writes, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus Christ. John is saying, look, I'm writing from the perspective of one who's an eyewitness, who saw Christ, who walked with Christ, who touched Christ, who ate with Christ. I saw everything, and you need to hear what I have to say. Uh, 2 Peter 1.16, Peter, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales, which some people think the Bible is, right? We did not follow these cleverly uh, devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16. John also writes in John 20, 30-31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. You look at the Gospel of John, you think, could John have written more? John says, yeah, I could have written more. I could have written lots more. But they didn't fit with my theme. <laughs> but John said, there's so much more that Christ did that are not written in this book. John goes on to say, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says, the reason I I didn't put all the other things in there because I wanted to show you that you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you're going to have eternal life. That's why I didn't put in the rest of this stuff. That's why I left some parts out. Luke 1, 1 through 3 says, and as much as we've undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having invested everything carefully, investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Of course, we have Luke writing to Theophilus. He's saying, I'm writing these things for you, for my account, my eyewitness account. Last verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 through 8. After, after that, Christ appeared to more than 500, talking about after, after Jesus' resurrection. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or died. Then Christ appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul, writing of Christ and how he'd been seen at five, by 500 people at one time. So you have all of these eyewitness accounts. Is it true? I mean, if you have that many eyewitness accounts all kind of saying the same thing, what do you think? Right? It's true. Talked about the second, the second thing we want to talk, ask. They appeal, or say, they appealed to the knowledge of their readers. 
In other words, as they're writing, they appeal and say, you remember, right? Happened during your time. You were here, you were there, or you remember this happening. They recorded this evidence. They presented it in the presence of hostile witnesses. In fact, in essence, they threw these facts at the lap of their readers to say, you know what I'm talking about. Acts 2.22 says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Where did the disciples go? Rome? No, Jerusalem, where the facts were. And the New Testament was presented among people who knew Jesus and they knew the facts. Because they were there during that time. Acts 26, 24 through 26, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters. Festus is the king at the time. Paul says, you know about these matters. I speak to him also with confidence since I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Paul is making a defense of the deity of Christ and presenting that to the king. King says, Paul, you're, you're nuts. You're crazy. And Paul reminds the king, oh king, you know what I'm talking about. Is it true? Well, you have the writers appealing to the knowledge of the readers of the day. What do you think? Why would they throw out there, you know, if it wasn't true? Basically, Paul there is talking to an unbeliever, saying, you, you, you know I'm not crazy. You, you know I'm not crazy. You know the facts. So yes, what we have is true. Because they appealed to the knowledge of their listeners as they wrote eyewitness accounts. That's the bibliographical test. The rest of the other two tests, we're going to fly through a little bit, okay? Because we only have like, what, five minutes? So buckle your seatbelts. Then you take it and you, you take some external evidence tests. You say, what, what does that mean? Are there any literary sources that confirm the Bible's inner testimony? And then are there discoveries that confirm the inner testimony of the Bible? Right? So, the literary question. You have, uh, you have Irenaeus. Irenaeus was the Bishop of Lyons in AD 180. He quoted Polycarp, who was martyred for his belief in Christ. Polycarp was also a disciple of John. And he says this, So firm is the ground upon which these Gospels rest. This was Polycarp, the disciple of John. So firm is the ground upon which these Gospels rest that the very heretics themselves bear witness to them. And starting from these, the Gospels, each one of them, the heretics, endeavored to establish his own particular doctrine. In other words, the heretics try to take, and they have to start at the Gospels, and they try to form some other doctrine that would go against it. What is this? Well, this is the literary source telling us and confirming the Bible's inner testimony. You have uh, uh, only one more, Eusebius. That's really, I, I couldn't make this any bigger. I, I didn't have time to make it another slide. But he's this historian. He preserved the writings of Papias. Papias was another disciple of John, who was the bishop of Hierapolis. And Papias had said this, Mark, having been the interpreter of Peter, um, Mark wrote as Peter dictated the words, wrote down accurately all that he mentioned, whether sayings or the doings of Christ. Not, however, in exact order, for it was neither here nor in a companion of the Lord, but afterwards... He accompanied Peter who adapted his teachings as necessarily required so that Mark made no mistake writing down these things in the exact order that Peter mentioned them. And he paid close attention to this one thing, not to admit anything he had heard nor to include any false statements among them. Literary source, outside of the Bible, giving external evidence to the Bible. All right, this, this next one is fun. All right, this came out of, uh, th th this I, I came across because I was teaching, teaching our, our Sunday school class, the, the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, and we came across Jericho, and I really thought, this is awesome, so I wanted to share this tonight as well, because uh, I, just, I just got excited. Now, our archaeological sources, we're going to talk about Jericho just for literally two seconds. 
as, many, as long as it takes, okay? Uh, but really quickly, you remember Jericho, right? The Israelites come in, they surround the city, they walk, march around the city for six days, and on the seventh day, they march around it seven times, the trumpet blows, and the walls fall down flat. I don't have a lot of time, so I gotta talk fast. Right? That's what happened, right? That's what the Bible said happened. But did that really happen, right? Also, we'll, we'll mention another uh, slight detail, but later. So, what happened? There's archaeological evidence. They found the city of Jericho, the old city of Jericho. It had been falling down. They, fo- they found those walls falling down, but not like a wall deteriorates and falls down. The walls kind of fell down and projected outward. Not from an outside attack to inward. You following me? They projected outward like they had fallen out. And in fact, they were, they were in such a, such a way that people would have no problem climbing up over the walls to get into the city. Almost like little steps. Right? That's interesting. That's archaeological find about the city of Jericho. What else does the Bible say? The Bible says that, uh, that uh, they only lasted seven days, right? So... They found grain pots filled with grain in Jericho at the excavation site. Now, if, if the city was under siege for any long time, what would disappear? The grain, food. So this tells us that uh, what happened in the city, it was sudden. Uh, and they had all the grain still there. Not only that, they found evidence of everything being burned. What had God instructed them to do with the city? Burn it. Right? They found evidence of burning at the city site. Not only that, the best part is, is, is right now. The north side area of the wall had not fallen. Do you remember the story of Jericho? Do you remember Rahab? Helping the, 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 the spies out over the wall? And she said, remember me? And they said, hang the cord out the window. We'll remember you. You and your family will be safe. And when the walls fell down, there was one spot that didn't fall where Rahab was. Well, there's a part of the excavation site that they say it doesn't look like all uh, other areas of the wall. It looks like it stood. You tell me whose house that was that was right there, right? You, I, you don't have to tell me because I know. It's Rahab's house. Is that not cool? To me, I go, wow, that's awesome. I mean, I didn't need that to tell me that the story, that, the, 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 that it was true, but that just uh, confirms it, Right? Like, you can't tell me it's not true now. I've got evidence <laughs> to back it up, right? Not that this isn't evidence enough, right? You follow, you follow me. You follow me. All right, ar- archaeological. Internal evidence test, that's the last thing we'll talk about, I promise. First of all, you look for contradictions in the Bible. Now, a lot of people have looked for contradictions, and honestly, I didn't want to spend any time on this point. I, I have things I could say about this and point out. Uh, people say there's a contradiction here and here, and then I could prove that oh, it's not a contradiction. I, we don't have time for that. Just believe there are no there are no contradictions in the Bible whatsoever. None at all. You find them. You come to me. You come to Pastor, and 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 you th- say I think I have a contradiction. There there isn't any. There isn't any. Um, secondly, changed lives. You say how is that an internal evidence test of the Bible? I want I want to show two verses. Hebrews four twelve. The Word of God is living. It's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing. As far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I've seen the Bible change lives. And that points to its internal test. It points to this verse. I saw a kid in a youth group in Indiana First time I met him, he's all in black, chains everywhere, fingernails black, didn't know God, unsaved. He got saved. And what God did to him was unbelievable. He walks in, I didn't recognize him. I'm like, Trent, what happened, man? Well, I got saved, so I figured I probably shouldn't wear all that. Okay, good, good. You didn't need to be taught that. I like that. Um, tremendous to see God change lives. And I believe we could sit here and tell stories about how God has worked and changed your life and my life. I believe that points to the internal test. We see 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore as anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things, new, new, new things have come. It's 
changed lives as evidence. And last of all, we're going to go through this quickly because I've, I've mentioned this already before in a sermon not too long ago. The own prophecy of the Bible stands this internal evidence test. Remember back when I taught on Isaiah, I went through this at the end of that, fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament was written hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years before Christ, over a 1,000 year time span and contains over 300 predictions of the coming Messiah, just the coming Messiah alone in prophecy. And all of them have been fulfilled. All, every single one of them has been fulfilled. When I said, you used this illustration already, I know, I love it. I love this illustration, so I'm going to use it again. Let's look at just, a, we're not going to look at eight prophecies, but we're going to look at five. He was born in Bethlehem, that's out of Micah 5 too. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth to me to be ruling in Israel. He's going forth from long ago, from the days of eternity. That's one prophecy told in Micah 5. That uh, this Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey colt. That's out of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph. Your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a donkey. Of course, we know that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he entered Jerusalem. And he was riding on the full of a donkey. People cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? That was fulfilled then. He was betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Of course, we know Judas Iscariot. But that was how Zechariah eleven twelve told us it was going to happen. If it's good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. He was executed with criminals. We know that in the Gospels. It talks about Jesus with, on, on the cross between two thieves. We see that in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. He's numbered with the transgressors, the thieves on the cross. Then he's buried in a rich man's tomb. That also goes back to Isaiah 53, 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Of course we know he was, he was uh, sealed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Arimathea the rich man. Say, why, why are we sharing all this? Because we're talking about the internal evidence test, and nothing better than an internal evidence test than prophecy. And I, this is the illustration I used before, and I'm going to use it again because it's good, and I love it, and it helps bring the point across. Professor Peter Stoner of Westmont College came up with this, this prophecy. He wanted to see the probability of a prophecy, and he narrowed it down to just eight. One man fulfilling just eight of the over 300 prophecies of the coming Messiah. That is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's the probability, one man fulfilling just eight prophecies. That's a, a one with a whole lot of zeros. I know, I've used this before, but it still packs a punch. I love it. So the probability of this fulfillment, you take the state of Texas. Last time I used Girl Scout Thin Mint Cookies, I'm going to change it to just the silver half dollar. All right? Just so it's not the same. It's not the same illustration. <laughs> you take one silver dollar and you cover it with a mark. And then you bury, bury it within the silver dollars two feet deep covering the state of Texas. You blindfold yourself, walk around the state of Texas, and just wherever you want to stoop down, maybe it's in Houston, you stoop down and you pick up the silver dollar. The probability of you picking up the silver dollar you put the mark on is the same probability of one man fulfilling just eight of the Old Testament prophecies. But Jesus Christ fulfilled every single one of them. That's an astronomical probability that should never happen in scientific terms. But Christ fulfilled them all. Is the Bible true? <laughs> yeah. We, we knew it was true before tonight, but hopefully tonight kind of encourages your faith, builds your faith up even more, and causes you to think, you know what? This is some good stuff that I could share with others. Yeah, I could still use the Bible, but this can help them when they say, yeah, I don't, you know, the Bible has been changed through the years. Say, no, it hasn't. Let me get my notes out because uh, I need my notes for that as well. Just so you know, I don't have all of that memorized either. Maybe you could pop on the website, listen to it again. But hopefully this encourages your faith. Hopefully it challenges you a little bit more to go, you know what? Maybe, maybe, maybe it challenges you to be, just be a witness at the workplace, and don't be afraid, right? Don't be afraid to answer those hard questions. I, if anybody's afraid, it's me. Like, I have, wrongly have the fear of man. Like, that is not a fear we should have, but I have it. 
I want people to like me, right? Maybe that's just me, not you. That's me. I want people, so I'm afraid to offend them. I'm afraid to make them mad, right? But God has taught me just through having this coworker who just easily just asks questions, and they're hard questions. You know, don't be afraid to tell that coworker, hey, you know what? I would actually love to answer that for you, but I want to answer it correctly. So would you mind if I get back to you on that? I've used that a lot of times. And I have found that that coworker goes, you know what? Yeah. If I know the coworker is asking and wants to know the answer, you know how sometimes you have that one that just wants to argue. Um, don't worry about it. Just kind of very friendly answer the questions as best you can. But there are some that really want to know. I have one who really wants to know everything. And I'm praying that one day God will use the things that I've learned, the things that he's taught me to eventually open this coworker's eyes to really the truth that the Bible is not just this book of literature that's been changed through the generations, but that we have what was written, and we can be confident of that. You know, I never let anybody tell me that, oh, it's been changed. You know, you say, well, what did you tell the coworker? Well, very, very, very lovingly, I said, well, I don't believe that at all. In fact, it's impossible for me to believe that from what I've seen and I try to share with them a few tidbits here and there. But folks, I hope this encouraged you tonight um, at least to be a testimony and a witness in your workplace. Uh, there, you know, as, as Pastor mentioned when he was at the game the other day, how many people there really knew Christ? You know, how many times are you in a crowd and go, man, all these people, do they know Christ? Um, it, it should be a sobering thought to us as believers today. To know we have the truth. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, we have the truth. Are we willing to go out and share it? And maybe face persecution. And to us here in America, that persecution is just, let's face it, it's pretty small. It's being made fun of. I mean, you could get hit. I, I mean, I don't know. But to the extent, most of the time, it's just being made fun of. But are you able to share the gospel? Are you willing you, you can be. It just takes some study. You have to be a student of the word. I'm not there yet. I know I'm not there yet. I still get fearful. I still, kind of, I still often back away. And then, no, oh, I shouldn't have backed away. Next time, God, help me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, man, I, I, I thank you so much for the Bible. I thank you for your promises that you have promised that your word will endure forever. And tonight, we've seen how you have used people to preserve your word, to preserve the manuscripts of your word, so that we can sit here today, in 2023, and know that what was written, we have, was exactly what was written so many years ago. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, Father, we can look at it and go, you know what? <laughs> Man, I have exactly the words of God as they were written. And Father, we thank you for that. And may we be challenged tonight, Father, by, by, by this, this, this lesson, this, this, this time tonight. May we be challenged to be, be better witnesses for you. And Father, that, that we have the truth and we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is true. Father, that we might share that truth with others in a very loving, very very special way as Christ had compassion on the lost, may we have compassion as well. May you take those coworkers that we have in our offices, may you take them and, and, and help us to be used by you to reach them for the gospel's sake, not for our sake. May you give us the words to say, may you help us to be students of the word. May you help us to, to be able to even say to those coworkers without fear, you know what, I don't know the answer to that question, but can, can I get back to you? I want to tell you the right answer. And Father, we thank you for the, the tools that you've given us to be students of the word. You've given us pastors to help us know the truth, to, to, to be able to rightly interpret scripture. You gave us the Sunday school teachers, the deacons. Father, there's, there's so many tools. All, all of those who've written commentaries through the years, Father, we have so much available at our fingertips that, Father, we don't even use. Father, may we just be students of the word that we might be a witness for you in this forsaken world who wants to believe that truth is relative and 
that, Father, it's just whatever truth is, is there and whatever truth they want to believe. But, Father, we know there's only one truth, and that's you. And that's your word. May we spread it with love and kindness and grace as you've done to us. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. And with that, you are dismissed.